Hey, it's Stu with Bitcoin and Financial Independence, and I've been meaning to do this episode on my real estate history for a long time, but I've always put it off. I thought I needed to gather some notes, but I'm just going to go off the cuff today, aside from a few screenshots on my phone that I'll use to supplement, just uh, screenshotted some quotes and different points that I want to touch on today. And don't get me wrong, I'm not a professional real estate investor by any means. This is something that I've done on the side a little bit. I've got one rental, so I'm not a real estate mogul, although I somewhat have aspirations to get to maybe four or five rentals. But I guess we'll see. The purpose of this episode is to share what I've learned about real estate, to share a few different points about how it fits in with Bitcoin, how it competes with Bitcoin, how it's different and the same as Bitcoin, and also some of the things I've learned about buying homes and some of the mistakes I've made, things like that. But to go to the beginning of my history with real estate, I had gotten married in 2015, and my wife and I were saving up a down payment for a house. And we lived in Utah at the time, just south of Salt Lake City. There was a tech company that had just built a new office there, and I got recruited to go there right out of college. Uh, we bounced around in a few apartments, and then we were looking at these condos that were, I think, a three-minute walk to my office. We were going to look at one of them. Uh, this was a three-bedroom, two-bathroom condo for $125,000. And by the time we left Utah in 2019, that condo, I believe, was about double in price. I believe it was about $200,000, $225,000 per condo. And I'm going to look them up right now and see how much these condos are going for. And you will not believe, uh, let's see, this is a two-bed, two-bath condo, 1,280 square feet for $365,000. $365,000. These are right by uh, a huge business district. Here's a three-bedroom, two-bathroom. It's less square footage, but it's got that extra bedroom. So this is 1,220 square feet, and it is going for $335,000. Let's see, I think there's another one in the same building. But yeah, I'm seeing anywhere from about 300,000 to some of the bigger units going for nearly 400,000 or at least being valued by about 400,000 depending on the improvements upon them. So that's really crazy because we could have essentially tripled our money had we gone that route and bought one of these condos and we definitely thought about it but decided to look elsewhere. Uh we then ended up getting under contract on a house that was I believe a four bed, three bathroom house. Now, keep in mind, we have no kids at this point, although my wife and I, now we have three kids, um, and we might have one more at some point. But we actually got under contract with this one house, uh, a very nice house, but it had like a front room, and then it had a big living room, and like, honestly, we got cold feet. We would have been what's known as house poor. It's where our mortgage payment is so much of our monthly budget that it wouldn't allow us to save up cash or do Roth IRAs or even a 401k match very easily. At the time, I was making between like 65000 and 70000 a year. So pretty modest salary. And this house we got under contract for, I believe, was $385,000. I'm looking at those houses now, and I can't remember exactly which one it was on the street here, but I'm within a few houses of it. Um, I'm seeing these homes now for five sixty-seven to 620 So again, that would have been not quite a double of money that we would have built equity. And so again, it wouldn't have been a, a terrible choice, but it wouldn't have allowed us to invest how we wanted to. Uh, so we ended up actually finding this house and I had been interested in it. It was for sale by owner and therefore uh, there would be no realtor involved and it would have been a little bit cheaper that way. But we actually ended up passing on it, although we did tour it when it was for sale by owner. And 
next thing you know, I saw it on the uh, the MLS, and I was like, you know what? I actually kind of like that house. And so my wife and I went and looked at it one more time, and we gave it another chance, and we ended up actually really loving that house. It had a finished basement. It was a five-bedroom, three-bathroom house with a nice big basement, lots of room, two-car garage, and a decent little yard uh, one block away, like literally two houses away from a pretty nice park with a playground. Uh, with a creek that goes through it and a frisbee golf course. So it was a nice setup there. And we already had our first daughter by the time that we ended up buying this house. And we bought this house for $300,000. Unfortunately, life kind of had other plans. We only lived in this house for about two and a half, I think, maybe three years. We ended up selling it for $350,000 and moving across the country. And it was to the point, you know, I mean, I was getting my 401k match. I was actually funding my employer stock purchase program. So I was getting discounted stock in my company and then I would just sell it as soon as I was able to. But it was a good house. It was in good condition and it kind of allowed us to rebuild our base. It wasn't too cost prohibitive. It didn't have many problems. It was an awesome house actually. I see that house now has a Redfin estimate of $525,000 and this is probably one of my biggest regrets. This house is near that condo that I first talked about that I could have bought for $125,000 and could have tripled my money on. Um, it's one mile from the office, so a 15-minute walk instead of a three-minute walk. And again, it's right by this nice park. It's got a ton of businesses around it. It's right off of the highway. And in Utah, how it works is there's mountains on both sides of the Salt Lake Valley. There's only so much room. Down in like Lehigh, American Fork, and Provo, you have a big lake in what's known as Utah County, this area. Uh, south of Salt Lake City, the next valley over. And again, you are constrained by mountains. And so all, a lot of the growth, pretty much all of it, is happening on the other side of the lake called Eagle Mountain, which is like a 20, 30, 40 minute drive, uh, depending on how far from the main part of the valley from Orem and Provo and Lehigh. And so a lot of people that want to live there, that want to work in Utah, Salt Lake City, there's a good amount of startups in the Salt Lake to Provo area. A lot of tech companies, high-paying jobs, they call it Silicon Slopes. But these people are forced to live in Eagle Mountain, which is just kind of uh, out in the hills, um, what used to be farmland, you, and you are still surrounded by some farms. But it's growing like crazy out there, and it's a good 40-minute drive at least in a lot of areas for, for most of the people. If you have to go down to your office, it's a good little drive there. Not so bad if you're a remote worker. And one of my biggest regrets, I actually had a coworker, actually what I consider to be a really good friend and somewhat of a mentor, he owns several rentals and he offered to manage the property of the house. But the house did need a new roof soon and it needed a new water heater. And we're just like, well, is this going to cost, you know, 10, 20 grand to, to get all this, some of the maintenance picked up on? And we are actually, uh, if we rented it, we would not have made any money. I think we could have rented it for about 1800 to $2,000 and our mortgage and everything else was about $1,500 a month. And then you add in the property management fee. Uh, so it would have been a break even thing. And we had you know, some of this maintenance stuff that we that we had to get. So we ended up selling the house for $50,000 more than what we bought it. But when you account for all of the fees for the realtor, the commissions and uh, like the title fees or whatever, closing costs, I think we only made like four or $5,000 uh, in profit uh, over our three-year ownership. And so while we own this house, we paid down our mortgage aggressively. Uh, when we first bought the house, we put 10% down. So it was 300,000, we owed 270. When we left, it was less than 250000 So we had paid down over $25,000 in the first uh, about two and a half years of owning it. So we did pull out a decent uh, fifty grand chunk of equity there and, uh, and sold a car when we moved across the country. 
But what I wish I had done, and, and we had no idea, like we moved in 2019. So this is a little over a year before COVID hit. And what I wish I had done is I, I could have gone to the bank and I know that I have a house that's worth $350,000. And so of that $350,000, uh, 80% of that is $280,000. And I only owed about $245,000. So I could have went and got a $35,000 HELOC uh, with a fixed interest rate at Zion's bank for like 1% for the first year. We could have used this $35,000 HELOC to take care of some of that maintenance. And I wish we had done that and kept it and just broke even on the mortgage, did the maintenance, had the HELOC in place because owning that house would be a huge asset today. It, it nearly doubled in price, you know, with it being worth nowadays over $500,000. And what I would have done at some point now, an 80% loan to value is $400,000. Uh, you know, it's, it's 2023. It's been a few more years. And let's just say that I'm paying about 5000 in interest every year. I would have owed about two hundred thirty-five. So I could have very easily gotten about $165,000 line of credit, a home equity line of credit against this house. And what can you do with $165,000? I could go buy four more rentals. I could have four $40,000 down payments on houses that actually make sense. We moved to the South when we moved across country. Homes are substantially cheaper in this area, but man, I could have bought some pretty good rentals or even just bought a rental in cash, and that would have cash flowed my HELOC and paid it off for me, essentially. But what we ended up doing instead, we sold the house, we kept the cash, we went and moved to a small apartment, so we downgraded our life, and I'm not going to go into this, but uh, maybe sometime, I, I may have touched on this in the past, but there's this thing called hedonic adaptation. It's very hard as humans. We think that we cannot downgrade our lives, but we totally can and still be happy and still love our life. And so what we did is we downgraded to a small two-bedroom apartment. We by now had two kids and we were on the second floor. So it was a little bit hard. We sold a car. We were a one vehicle family for six months. And thankfully we lived right behind a grocery store. So my wife, every single day, she would just walk about a quarter of a mile around the block with our toddler and our newborn. And she would just buy the groceries that we needed for that day and then walk home. And that's how we avoided needing two cars for a long time until we eventually ended up buying a second vehicle, which was a $600 2003 Chevy Blazer with less than 125,000 miles on it, driven by a, an elderly lady. So just a steal of a deal. And we picked up that second vehicle that made our life a little bit easier. And it was so cheap, it was just kind of a no-brainer. But anyway, our plan was to kind of scope out the area in our new town, our new city, and figure out where we want to live long-term, figure out the school systems, figure out all this stuff. And we actually had some friends that we went to church with. The husband was in medical school and just moving as he finished up school. And they were living in this little condo not far from us in a place with some of the best schools in the area. And so uh, they needed to sell this. And we talked with them. They had siblings that were lawyers. And so what we did is we had them drop a purchase agreement um, for a flat fee. So it saved a ton of money in realtor commissions. And then we, uh, we came to terms. We bought this three-bedroom, two-bathroom condo for $125,000. And all we did was paint a room and we did replace some carpet. This was a pretty cheap condo. We were into it about $130,000 all told. And we only put 5% down. Now, it is an older condo. It was built in the 1960s and it has aluminum wiring, which is something kind of interesting. Uh, there have been some problems at the HOA. I have been on the board of the HOA at times and I'm not currently on it anymore. Just... I don't live there anymore. We ended up renting it out, but some of the issues are this aluminum wiring. Uh, someone had a fire in the condo and there was this big lawsuit 
the HOA fees were pretty reasonable. It had two pools, I think two tennis courts, and it's in decent shape. You know, the exteriors look good. The, the lawn care is pretty good. Everything is good there for the most part. And I think the HOA was about $235, and my mortgage is less than $700. So all in, I'm paying less than $1,000 a month, and I have hardly any maintenance issues other than maybe the occasional plumbing issue because the plumbing is also kind of old. So we lived there for a while. It was a little bit tough. We were on the bottom floor, which was nice. And actually, the condo, I think, is pretty high quality. It's super soundproof. You never hear anybody above you. Uh, the people above us never hear us and, you know, screaming kids and stuff like that. So we really enjoyed our stay there. Uh, had a, a little bit of a backyard area, which was nice. Um, even the little cement pad, our kids would ride scooters on. Uh, we'd had a, a kiddie pool back there at times. We'd ride scooters around the tennis courts, and there's a little walking trail as well. And obviously, we would swim in the summer. So we enjoyed our time there. I think we lived in that place for a little bit over a year, and we were kind of looking for a house. Obviously, we uh, we ended up getting shut into that place. In COVID, it was a little bit tough. Uh, we had friends that lived in the same condo. There was four, there was four condos to one building, basically. And it was just tough. Uh, it was a small space. I worked in our bedroom at a little desk, and it was a little bit tough. We were definitely looking for more space to get the kids out, uh, not have to worry about them going in the road because we don't have a front yard, really, uh, stuff like that. So six months into COVID, it was about August of 2020, I ended up finding this house, and my wife was out of town. She went to go see some family with the kids at the end of summer before uh, preschool started. And so she was gone for a couple weeks. And I found this house uh, in this nice area. We had some other friends that lived on the same street and we we're like, wow, this is awesome. It's got one of the best schools in the city. It's a nice area. It's right by a grocery store. It's got sidewalks. Here in the South, there's not a lot of neighborhoods that have sidewalks. So that was a plus. Quiet street and the house is on a cul-de-sac. So I showed my wife the pictures of the house and she liked the layout. It seemed really good. I, I went and got a showing. It was pretty hot uh, property at the time. There was a lot of people going, but it was a smoker house. I could tell that had been smoked in. The yard needed some work. There was a lot of people that were interested in the house because it was listed lower than what a lot of the houses on the street were. And it was because of what we found out about a little bit later, which was a bunch of deferred maintenance and uh, even a lot of neglect and somewhat abuse of the house. But the lady that owned it, she was an older lady. Uh, I believe she had dementia and she just could not keep up on the house. Uh, she smoked in the garage, which uh, filtered through the laundry room into the kitchen and I heard from some neighbors, the yard was crazy. They tried to mow it sometimes, but there was like rebar in the yard. So they would end up hitting some stuff in their, with their lawnmower and didn't want to risk mowing any further. Uh, so neighbors kind of tried to help, but uh, it was not easy. I ended up finding out that what happened with this house was there was this lady, and we'll just say that she's the grandma. She had a daughter come live with her. Uh, this daughter was single or divorced or something and, and had two kids. And then she had a daughter-in-law that also had uh, two or three kids living in this house. This is a three-bedroom, two-bathroom house. And it's a decent-sized house, although it is smaller than the national average. But it's about 2,000 square feet. And so we've got grandma living here. We've got daughter with two kids and daughter-in-law with two kids all living here. And also some dogs. And I guess there were some issues with the dogs uh, almost attacking one of the neighbors. Um, and just like never being let out. Therefore, the dogs are peeing in the house. Uh, there was cats. Uh, there was all sorts of chaos at this house. People coming over late and lots of stuff. So from what we gathered, some of the neighbors were pretty excited to 
have this family move out just sounded like there was a lot of problems there. So I toured it. We liked it. We thought we could make this place work. It's going to need some effort, but it's a good place where our family can grow in a nice, quiet neighborhood and be able to ride bikes in the cul-de-sac and all that. And I had that discounted price because of this deferred maintenance. Uh, so we put in an offer. It was listed for 240000 We offered over because this is what you had to do at the time. So we offered two fifty, ten thousand over. And this is actually not a bad strategy. What I've learned is that sometimes it's good to offer over so that you get under contract and now you're not competing with anyone else. You are competing one-on-one. -on -one. And so of course we uh, end up doing our due diligence and we go through the home inspection and I think we're able to basically have them cover a whole bunch of the closing costs. Uh, the sale was actually going through this lady's son because the grandma had dementia. And so I believe this out-of-state son was trying to handle the estate. And I don't know if she was going to a nursing home or hospice or, or what was going on exactly. We actually ended up getting a bunch of the closing costs covered and everything. So we ended up still buying it for 250000 but we did get all of our closing costs covered as kind of a concession that we were going to have to put about 10000 into it. There was some mold that we found in the house upon inspection, and it came from the uh, the heat pump. The, uh, the HVAC unit, which was in the attic, and it was not on the right-sized pan that would catch condensation so that that water leaked down one of the kids' rooms in two different spots to cause some mold in the closet and some mold in the corner of the room. So we still bought the house for $250,000. There is an HOA, and it's only $15 a month, so it's pretty cheap. The house was built in 1999, and it is on a big lot. The lot is 0.6 acres, roughly. So this is where things kind of get interesting. Uh, by the way, Redfin now lists our house estimate at $360,000. So we had done okay in that way. We put 10% down. We put 25000 down on the house. And I wish we had done a few things during the due diligence. They told us that the HVAC system needs to be put on a bigger pan. I wish we had called some HVAC company to come take a look as part of our due diligence to see what would need to be done. Because what ended up happening is that they found that the entire unit was full of mold. There was mold throughout all of the HVAC, and so we pretty much had to replace the whole thing. Also, the heat pump was like not the optimal size for our house, uh, but just this mold issue. They tested the air in our house, and they said they have never seen mold levels so insanely high. This was the worst house that they had seen. So that was terrible to hear, and so what we thought might end up being, you know, that we're gonna have to put $10,000 into this, that maybe we can keep the floors and like just redo the carpet. Uh, there was a smoke smell, so we knew that we were going to have to paint. So we were just thinking like, yeah, we bought the house for $250,000. Uh, we put $25,000 down. With about $10,000, we can have this house painted and get the HVAC pan fixed. The uh, the hardwood in the kitchen didn't seem that bad, but this is where things go a little bit crazy. So I'll just try to share this briefly, uh, kind of rapid fire. Uh, we ended up like pulling up what's called quarter round, uh, this wood. It's along the baseboards. And... We're seeing mold there, so we ended up pulling up parts of the floor, parts of the carpet. There was mold under the carpet, probably where dogs were peeing. There was mold under the hardwood in the kitchen. Uh, there was mold under the linoleum in the bathroom. There was mold everywhere, and obviously there's a smoke smell and stuff. So we ended up pulling all the floors up throughout the whole house. All the carpet was gone. All of the wood was gone. All the linoleum was gone. All the wallpaper in the bathrooms were gone. And then to get rid of the smoke smell, we had to use a special type of paint that needed two coats, and we're talking about painting the walls with this special primer. Uh, so we did two coats of that, and not just the ceilings and the walls, but we also did the floor uh, just to help with the smoke smell. We literally painted the, uh, the concrete slab that the house is built on to try to help with the smell. 
and we scraped up a bunch of mold and all this stuff. So it was pretty nasty. There was a uh, cat poop in the corner of the garage. Uh, the garage was super gross because that's where the smoking was happening. Could not even get stuff off the garage door, just the tar buildup. Because we had to make this special solution. It was this crazy solution. If anyone is dealing with uh, buying a, a smoker home, uh, this solution is amazing for getting stuff off walls and off garage doors. Happy to share that cleaner recipe. But wow, it was a lot of work. Uh, painting everything, two coats with the special restoration paint, uh, and then two coats with the normal color paint on all the walls and also the ceilings, which it has some pretty high ceilings in the kitchen. And of course, this is about one year into my wife running her own business. So she's trying to run her own business and do all that. I'm working full time. We had the luxury of living in the condo that we had bought while we did the renovations on the house. And so let's just recap. We thought that it would take about four weeks and $10,000 to get the house livable and in good condition. Instead, it ended up taking 12 weeks and $35,000. Now, after the down payment of $25,000, we had an emergency fund, but we did not have another $35,000 laying around. So what we ended up doing was cash flowing a lot of things like the HVAC and the paint. Uh, we got a 0% credit card that went for 18 months, and we just started buying groceries and gas on that card. So we had money to buy the paint and the painting supplies, the HVAC system, etc. And then we financed the floors. They had a, a good 0% financing option through the flooring company that we used. And then we bolstered our cash position with a loan from my dad, which I normally would not recommend borrowing its family, but we paid that off as soon as we could. Uh, we, we paid interest as well on that. And once we had done our $35,000 of work and moved in after three months, we actually, I think, got another 0% credit card, started running up that bill so that we could take my cash flow from my job and pay off my dad. So we just kind of shifted the loan to family because we don't want to mess up the relationship. And we shifted that onto a 0% credit card. And then we went to work paying off the first credit card. We did this for way too long, kind of shuffling around on 0% credit cards over the next uh, over two years. And we just barely in 2023 have put an end to shuffling that debt around. Now the house went up tremendously in value, as I already said, from 250000 to 360000 so we ended up getting a home equity line of credit. And I've talked about that on the podcast before. Uh, I'm locked in at 2.8% for the first three years. And then after that, it goes to whatever the rate is. It does have a balance. And that's how we also helped pay off our 0% credit cards. And we also, uh, probably against our better judgment, got allocated to Bitcoin when I first kind of got into it in the year 2021. So I actually overall am down on my Bitcoin position. I bought near all-time highs. And then ever since then, I've been just dollar cost averaging on a daily or weekly basis and slowly paying off the home equity line of credit before we end up having to pay a lot of interest when we still have about 15 months before that scenario kicks in. And who knows, the Federal Reserve might pivot and our interest rate could be only 3 or 4%. We've rented out the, the condo for the last year and a half almost. When we moved out, we ended up replacing the carpet there for the incoming tenants. And they have been super awesome to work with. We've had a few plumbing issues over the years, but nothing major, just slow draining sinks and showers. Our tenants have taken great care of the condo. We rent out the condo for $1,250. I think I could get $1,400 or maybe $1,500 per month. I have not raised rents on them because of how good they've taken care of it. And they are also planning to move out this summer. And at that point, I'm not sure if I should keep it or not. Back to my current house, the smoker house that we bought in August of 2020. Shortly after we moved in, one of the neighbors came up to me. They've got kids uh, about the same age as my kids. And they were saying, yeah, we've we thought about building a fence between our yards because right now it's just open. 
So I told them, yeah, I'll get a survey. I'll figure out where the line is. And uh, if we want to build a fence, we can. And it ended up being a really awkward, difficult situation. I wish I had gotten a survey when we bought the house. This ended up being a huge headache because we did not know exactly where the property lines were for the house that we bought. At the back of all the houses on our street, when it rains really heavy, there is a low spot that is on purpose and the water will flow down our hill and we are at the bottom of that. So there's an easement there and our property goes from like being this grassy depression at the back of the yard to in our yard, it almost turns like into a creek where it's got some rocks and stuff at our property ends up going into this other big creek that always has water running down it. So it really like kind of turns into a creek at our property. And I had not been back to really look at the creek. My whole yard was extremely overgrown with plants. There was rebar that we found. There was these plastic uh, like soda pop containers that someone had used as the edge of their garden, I guess, that were just full of dirt. And they were, they were pretty big and pretty heavy, uh, at least with the, all the dirt in them. There was just a lot to discover in the backyard. And past that little ditch, that little creek in our backyard that happens when it rains, uh, there was a bamboo wall. And I did not know that was there. And I did not know that was ours. So the survey revealed that my next door neighbor that wanted to build the fence, he had actually been mowing probably about 10% of my yard. And he ended up having a much smaller yard than what he thought. And it was pretty awkward when we found out that where his swing set is located, he thought it was in the middle of his yard. No, that swing set is on the edge of his yard. And it was about four feet from the line. And, and so he'd been mowing into my yard, not knowing it mowing about 20, 30 feet over, thinking that was all his, but now it's not. So that's really awkward. The neighbor on the other side has a fence. Uh, and since we're on a cul-de-sac, my yard looks like a baseball diamond kind of. And then the other neighbor on the left side of our house, they had already fenced it, but they did not fence it on the line. So what we thought was our yard on that side, actually there was a big uh, kind of like a pie-shaped piece over there that they, they fenced a square, even though their yard is shaped like a trapezoid at the very end of the cul-de-sac versus ours is kind of on the side of the cul-de-sac. And so we have the baseball diamond shape and our neighbor that wants to build a fence, you know, just has a normal square at the beginning of the cul-de-sac. So kind of an awkward thing. And I was just like, you know what, don't worry about it. We'll just keep it open for now. Um, and honestly, this neighbor is interesting. They hardly ever talk to me. Uh, I would wave and stuff and they just don't really wave back, but our kids still play together, but it's just awkward. I'm not sure if it's because of the yard, um, because I thought things were all good that we came up with a good solution. And honestly, it just seems like he doesn't like me anymore. So I'm not sure what's going on there. But then going back to this ditch, our two backdoor neighbors that we had um, at the end of our baseball diamond shape, our yard backs up against two houses, actually like two and a quarter houses we back up against. The backside line of our house is extremely big. And so these two households, both of them are an elderly Asian couple. I'm talking, we have two 75 plus elderly Asian couples back there. And their fence is not on the line. Their fence is pulled way back before their line. And they were actually gardening behind their fence. So like you walk out your back door, you go to your fence. They had a gate in their fence. They would walk out to the gate. And then they had about 20 to 30 feet where they would garden back there. And they go right up to the ditch. And they had a bamboo wall that they had planted this bamboo. Uh, that went up alongside the ditch. And so this was a big problem to me because bamboo is invasive. If these people are gardening behind their fence, like I said, the fence is not on the line. Uh, and they've got like 20, 30 feet. And unfortunately, about half of that property 
was mine. So this was extremely awkward when he got the survey because my surveyor is going out there and this one Asian lady is back there gardening in her sweet potatoes. And my surveyor is walking through her garden and putting stakes down in the middle of her sweet potato patch. And we're trying to explain how this all works, but there is a, uh, a little bit of a language barrier because English is not the first language. And, and only one of the neighbors was home, but the stakes were placed all along this line. And the other neighbor I found out is out of town. So we tried to explain to this one neighbor, like, look, this is where our property line is. So like, we'll let you garden for now. This is kind of awkward. We, we got to talk and figure this out, but just don't move these stakes so we know where the line is. And I was a little bit skeptical uh, that the stakes would be moved. So I ended up putting some rebar into the ground, like really low. I just left a little bit of the top of the rebar out in kind of uh, hidden places alongside the line. I took a string across the whole line and tied it to the stakes. And I put some rebars down in some strategic spots just so that if they pulled up stakes, it would be very hard. Like you'd have to get a shovel to dig up these rebars and I would still be able to generally know where the line is. But one day I went out in the backyard and the stakes were pulled up by both neighbors. And so I went to knock on the front door of one of the neighbors and uh, I just said, hey, you know, I'm your neighbor. Uh, just moved in on the other street. I'm your back door neighbor. And I need those stakes put back because that's the, the property line. And they basically said, no, that's our property. And I said, nah, I'm sorry, this is kind of hard news, but like I actually own that. But I'm open to talking about how we can make this work for both of us. And they just started kind of like yelling at me, ended up yelling me off the porch and they would not listen at all. So this situation turned really bad and was terrible. I ended up going and retying the string across the line using my rebars. And I spray painted an orange line just to kind of make things clear. I felt bad doing that uh, across people's gardens and stuff, but I needed them to take me seriously because I paid for this land. It is my land. I have a right to it. And I was not going to just simply relinquish it. If they want to talk about it like adults, then we can talk. But I ended up putting more wood stakes a little bit deeper into the earth than the surveyors had done roughly across the line. And I know that they were pretty upset. Actually, the one neighbor with the sweet potato patch, they were cool. When the surveyor came out, they were cool. It was the other neighbor that was just contentious. And so unfortunately, we kind of had this cold war going on where I knew this neighbor was mad at me, but I didn't know how to fix it because they didn't want to talk. I tried to explain. They don't want to talk to me. I left them a note. I left them my number. That's when I... uh said like, look, this is land that I own, that I pay taxes on, that I bought. So like I said, I put those stakes in and I started cutting down bamboo I, because this is an invasive plant. It was actually coming through the ditch. And my whole thought was that I need to control the bamboo on my property. Bamboo is terrible. It grows like crazy. It can actually uh, grow through and break concrete. And it was starting to come across this rocky ditch into my property. And so every morning for a long time, for months, I would go out early in the morning, about five or six in the morning. I would cut down bamboo, cut down new starts. I would take my pickaxe and I would dig up the roots, put them in a five-gallon bucket and basically try to eradicate it. And they did not like this. They would often uh, continue to trespass. Then I would leave some of those bamboo stalks there and they would kick them into the ditch and I would put them back on the edge because I, I don't want them in the ditch because it's just going to block the rainwater and possibly flood my yard and my house if it's too much of a blockage. So it was a months-long standoff. We had a few phone calls. We had a few talks. We talked about a few things about trying to come up with a peaceful resolution. But again, they simply were not willing to relinquish it. They thought that since they had used it for 20 years that it was now theirs. And that's, that's unfortunately was not the case. I possibly would have rented it to them. I possibly would have sold them that piece or something along those lines. But 
Uh, unfortunately, the lines of communication were open on my side, but not on their side. And so I ended up having to play hardball and shut them out. It got so bad at one point, you know, and I, I had cut down a whole bunch of bamboo that they had planted. And I'm sure like every day they would come out and I had already cut stuff down that morning. And it sucked doing it. I'm, I'm leaving out some details of what happened and how bad it got. And I will just share this. I am part Asian as well. I am part Japanese. And, you know, they were calling me racist. And I'm like, I'm not racist. I'm part Asian too. Like I grew up with my grandma. My grandma is, is 100% Japanese. So like, this is not a race thing. This is I own this property type of thing. And I was willing to work with you, but you were unwilling to work with me and, and just being a jerk. So I just have to take control now and I have every right to this land. I paid for it. So yeah, it got really ugly. Um, I cut down this bamboo and it was just awkward in our backyard because uh, anytime I was out there mowing the lawn, like they were out there gardening and they could just see me because I took the wall of bamboo down. And it sucks it had to happen that way, but I could not find another solution that worked. I ended up, I had cameras out there um, just because I was sick of them kicking stuff in. And so I would go out there and just stand there awkwardly to keep them from kicking stuff into the ditch, to keep them from trespassing because I had no trespassing signs posted on the stakes and all the stuff. They ended up uh, yelling at me one day saying that they were getting a survey. And so I had cameras like literally 20 feet up in the tree. And so they, they told me that they were getting a survey and that they would find out and that they would show me. They got their survey and it actually gave me another foot. And the reason why is that my backyard spans two and a half backyards and we had two data points. And, and it, like I say, it's, it's back, like there's a ditch. It's, it's kind of like a slanted hill and it's kind of rocky. It's a little bit of rugged terrain. And I just had two data points, but now this one house is getting another survey. And so now we have three data points. And so actually from my survey and like they pulled up the original survey stakes. And so for months, I just had my stakes in the ground where I thought the line was kind of like based on where I put those hidden rebars into the ground. So I did my best, but they got their survey and guess what? Now we have three data points. I knew where the three corners were. There was like a piece of concrete embedded in the ground with a nail sticking out. And so they found it. And one of them was in the middle of a bamboo patch on their side. And so now we have three data points to make the line even straighter. And they, you know, they got these little flags put in and it gave me another foot. And so what I did, I went and put my no trespassing stakes and I squared them. I, I evened them up because there was a one foot gap between my stakes and their little flags that they got. And so I, I moved my stakes up one foot. They came out when I did that and they flipped out. Uh, I almost got assaulted with a garden tool. And I'm just like, look, there's not like a one foot gap of no man's land. It's just a line. There's no demilitarized zone here of this one foot thing. So like you got your survey, you know exactly where your line is. That's where it is. That's just how it works. So cops were called. Uh, just an awkward situation. Uh, cops were called the next day again for another kind of like standoff. And then things kind of just sat there for a while. The one neighbor, we just call her Sweet Potato because she was there when the survey was done and the stakes were going down in her Sweet Potatoes and I, I felt so bad, but they understood. They were nice about it. They moved their stuff. They had a garbage can out there. They had sticks that, you know, beans grew up. They moved everything and they totally were nice about it. And we were able to actually talk with them. They shared stuff from their garden with us. The other neighbor did not want to talk or negotiate at all. But we found out from what we call Mrs. Sweet Potato that the mean neighbors were out of town. And so we ended up just hurrying up, getting a, a big tree taken down that was three feet onto our property. So it's right on the edge. And then we got a nice, uh, you know, six foot fence put up in two days. And so when they came back, there was a fence and we, uh, we haven't had an issue since.
we actually only did half the length. It was a length of about 140 feet, and we only fenced the 70 feet of the mean neighbors. And then we let Mrs. Sweet Potato finish her, their gardening for the year, and then we fenced the rest of it. Also, lumber prices. This is when lumber prices were crazy. So we, uh, we did the fence in two parts, uh, but it's been peaceful back there. It's been nice. And the mean neighbor actually took their fence down that's 20 feet away from their line, and they put up a shorter picket fence, which is a little bit weird because we are more downhill than they are. And now they don't have a six-foot fence, so we can see their heads up over the top of our fence when they come out in their backyard, which is a little awkward because I'm sure they can see us, we can see them. But again, there's been no further issues, no further conversation. I don't hold any bad feelings toward them and hope that they're doing okay. Now, the reason why they probably pulled their fence back is because it starts to drop off into the ditch. So they fenced to where it was flat, and it kind of made sense. And then the bamboo was also kind of like another privacy fence. When I went back there and first discovered it, it was it was just crazy. We could not even see the roofs of the houses behind us because of the bamboo, and it was just going crazy back there. There was all sorts of uh, invasive plants. There was poison ivy everywhere. Uh, so I've cleaned up all this stuff. I've made the ditch drain better to keep my yard from flooding and to lower the, the risk of my house from flooding. So it's been a lot of work, but I think it was worth it. Unfortunately, there was uh, just so much conflict that had to go on. So the takeaway for me is this. Uh, I will never buy a property without getting a survey first. I have to know where the line is and I have to know if people are using it and stuff like that. You'll be surprised how common it is that the fence is not on the line. Uh, and so someone did not get to keep all their land or someone is using your land, stuff like that. So get a survey. It's a pain. It was like 400 to 600 bucks, but it kind of at least gives you an idea of like, if I'd have gotten a survey during due diligence and had this conflict with the neighbor, I don't know if we'd have bought the house. Maybe we would still, maybe not. Uh, but I also, because I didn't get the survey, I didn't know how far back my property went to this overgrown ditch. Uh, I didn't know that there was bamboo and that was going to be an issue. Something that would threaten my whole yard and just be this, uh, this part-time job in the spring where I have to like dig up all this bamboo and cut it down. And it's such a pain. It's so hard to get rid of. You pretty much have to excavate it four feet down to make sure you get rid of all the bamboo, which is really hard to do in a ditch and it's all rocky. So it's a pain. I don't know if I would buy the house again if I knew what I knew about contentious neighbors and bamboo and the boundary issue that we had. But uh, overall, it's worked out and it's taken a ton of work. Okay, I've gone way longer than I thought, but that is my real estate episode. That is my real estate history. And in part two, we'll talk about what I'm dealing with in my rental right now, what my options are, how I plan on using real estate in the future, and do some compare and contrast. And I hope there was a few lessons in there for you. Hope that uh, it was somewhat entertaining. I remember that financial independence is doable, and I'll be back with you soon.